if you speak with a lot of these companies and you tell them what you're looking to do, they're often really interested and they go, oh, great, we struggle to find partners that really know our product. You know, if we get a lead, would you be interested in taking it? And you're like, heck yeah, I'll take your leads. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to the podcast. I got the boss man here to drop some... uh, What are you going to drop today? I don't know. I'm nervous. What (laughs) am I supposed to drop today? (laughs) Let me allude to the concept of today's episode. It is something of an insurance policy. There is money and opportunities that can materialize in your bank account in relative short order all around us. And when you know the simple techniques to see where that money is flowing and how you can tap into it. That can be an opportunity, an insurance policy, a reliable way to make flexible income from anywhere on the planet. And regardless of your situation right now, and that's sort of the promise of today's ep. Sound exciting? I want to make money, yeah. We're going to get into it today. First, I want to do a little housekeeping at the top. We appreciate all the emails. I've been getting a lot of thoughtful responses to the concepts presented on this show at dan at tropicalmba.com. We are building future episodes around a lot of those responses. And you know what, Ian? A lot of people complain about their inboxes because, of course, anybody can send you an email. However, so many listeners of this show take the time to craft thoughtful responses to the ideas presented here, and we talk about them, discuss them on our production meetings. They definitely inspire us. It's interesting, when you have a public brand like this, you do receive, every morning I wake up, I receive maybe 20 kind of pitches, like people trying to get something out of us. And I don't think there's any reason to be salty about that. That's actually a really nice thing. It means people noticing, they want something, there's stuff happening. I appreciate all that inbound. You know, if all that inbound is problematic, you know, you can set filters up, but also, you know, set very real filters in your business. Like, when I compare my email inbox to my Dynamite Circle inbox, you know, where you have to pay a membership, you have to make an application, you have to have certain goals and standards in mind, all this, it's just such more qualified communication at that point. So, you know, I'm still thankful that I wake up every morning, honestly, Ian, and receive 20 pitches for folks that want to come on this podcast and peddle their wares. Now, today's episode, one of the reasons I was so excited about it is it's decidedly someone who has zero to gain from sharing their knowledge with us here today. Which is often the case with our guests, which I think is a great thing. A couple news items. I got to say, the September zeitgeist is in full bloom here in Austin, Texas. I was driving around the other night, and I just felt like all of a sudden, the whole state of Texas decided that COVID wasn't a thing anymore, and that we were just going to go back to normal life. And I, I reflected on it a little bit, and This is also something that happens every year in the business community where we talk about armpit August and everybody's on vacation and figuring out what the rest of the year is going to look like. And September, I really feel like people have clicked into gear 
and figuring out how they're going to drive their lives and their businesses forward. So it's been kind of energizing. I'm trying to decide if you make these concepts up and then you make life fit into them or if life actually does fit into them. That's like my biggest question right, right. now. It's the fundamental question for every theorist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this, hiring has uh, upticked. Oh, yeah. And over at Dynamite Jobs, I mean, we see this happening. And I guess it is the case from talking to other people. It, it is the case that you think like, okay, this is a sprint. We're kind of towards the end of the year, you know, Q3, Q4. What can we actually accomplish before it gets to be the holiday slump? And so uh, over at Dynamite Jobs, we have seen a huge push in terms of people trying to hire before the uh, holiday season. Before we jump into the episode today, I'd like to give you an opportunity to give us your pitch, boss man. I mean, no, I know we have an exciting software platform coming down the pike at Dynamite Jobs, but it, it's not quite public yet. Let's talk about what is public. What are we doing on a day-to-day basis to help listeners of the show at DJ? Filling jobs. You know, Dynamite Jobs started as a job site, basically. We were aggregating... A job board. Yeah. We were aggregating and, and also posting what we thought were the best remote jobs, like the no BS jobs, the jobs that we wanted to have when we were younger. And certainly, we've posted jobs on there. It's grown a lot in the last couple of years, and especially the last year, because you and I have put a, a lot of focus on it. We have actually some really exciting software news coming up, but I'll save that for later. The work that we've been doing recently is helping people hire and specifically helping people remotely hire. So finding amazing candidates and placing them into companies. Early on in this venture, Dan, one of our main objectives was placements. And this is still one of our main KPIs is how many people can we place in remote jobs? Yeah. And at this point, it's hundreds and hundreds of people that we've actually, which is cool. It really is. And I think the interesting thing is that our pool of candidates and people that come to our site, word of mouth is getting out there, certainly because Google's not helping us out at all. I'm burying the lead a little bit. So let me just say it and have you respond. Last month, we booked $16,000 of revenue at Dynamite Jobs. How do we do it? We're actively placing people in companies. So basically what that means is people come to us and they say, hey, I've got this position to fill. I haven't been successful in it before, or it's above the bounds of my team, or you know, we don't have resources, whatever it is. We go out there and we find you the perfect candidate and we place them in your company. And basically what that means is we do all the interviewing, we do all the screening, if we need to do technical assessments, then we send those out to people. We've even on some occasions review technical assessments. So basically, we completely vet candidates and deliver them to you, generally somewhere between three and five people. And they are placed in your company within three to five weeks. So we got a team of five that understand bootstrap businesses. And all it takes is like, if you want to go from having to hire yourself to having a 30-minute phone call with us instead, and then having us go out and take care of the vast majority of it, we have different price points for you know, whether we take care of all of it or whether we take care of just promotion and getting you the right candidates. If you're stressed out about hiring and you want people who understand your business to bring you the right people that are amazing, that's what we charge for. And it's worked. Now you can do the math on five people versus $16,000 a month and figure out that it's not exactly a profitable success yet, but we're getting there and hopefully we'll have some, you know, continued positive milestones to share on the show in the upcoming months. So let's get stuck into this conversation, Ian. I I hope the details shared today will be inspiring to you 
on your wealth journey. And Bossman and I will be back at the end to share some reflections. Of course, we get so many emails from listeners that are interested in entrepreneurship, but there's this vagueness around how do you get started, where do ideas come from, and, and how do you make it happen? The proposal here is simple, Ian. If you are open to it, sit down and dig deep into what you might already have going for you and combine that with some very simple research tactics that will be illuminated on today's show. And if you're willing to start, combine that with start making some sales calls and some cold proposals, you can begin getting a business off the ground as soon as you like. Because today, we're going to be talking about a business model we're kind of a little bit in love with. It's called SWAS, and that stands for Software with a Service. The idea is simple. You take an existing product, and that's the beauty of it. You don't need to employ extremely expensive developers or build one yourself and use it as a tool for providing a service to solve problems for clients. Essentially, you charge for the implementation of a very expensive thing that companies have already decided to invest in. And that's just what today's guest, Lawrence Taylor, and his wife and co-founder did. They established HIP10 using the platform Salesforce. And Lawrence is going to share the mistakes they made along the way so you don't have to. But there's a lot more we cover today, including working with your life partner, using your, quote, career capital to get started, and why niching has solved a lot of problems that HIP10 experienced in the early days. So just a little background, HIP10 is a totally remote company. And I know because they're in the DC, Lawrence and his wife have lived all around the world, including Mexico, Spain, and more recently, the US. HIP10 has 10 employees currently, and their annual revenue is in the high six figures. So let's jump right into it. We started out by discussing what services HIP10 provides. For those who don't know what Salesforce is, it's a kind of do anything platform. You can kind of do marketing, sales, customer support. The list goes on and on. It's a Swiss Army knife of, of features. So we use the platform to help them, you know, just be a bit smarter with how their business works, particularly because insurance is such an old industry. You know, it's kind of pen and paper, Rolodexes, business cards. So any kind of technology you can slice in there is just going to help them be better. So that's where we come in. Now, you guys you know, you're young, technology forward, digital nomads. Now we're combining one of the oldest marketing platforms on the web, Salesforce. It's one of the original SaaS success stories. And now it's just an absolute behemoth. And combine that with the insurance industry, which is equally, I would say, like entrenched. It feels like maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast would think maybe there's not a lot of opportunities in insurance. So can you describe to me the process of how you guys connected the two and saw opportunity there for yourself? Well, you're quite right. Insurance is, it's a dinosaur, you know, it's hundreds of years old and, you know, a lot of the guys in it and the gals as well, have been doing the same thing for decades. So that, that is one of our challenges is introducing new technology because people don't like change. But, you know, there are kind of a new breed of insurance companies popping up that are very tech forward. How did we get into it? We don't have backgrounds in insurance. Neither is my, my co-founder. You know, we went through a process of, you know, when we started our business, kind of trying everything. Any client that came along, we would, we would say yes, and we'd happily take their money and, and kind of try and give them some value. Like I'm sure most of your listeners know, 
when you're kind of everything to everyone, it's really difficult to be good at anything. And, you know, every time we came across a customer, we had to start from the beginning, kind of learn what their business was, how do they make money, what are they interested in, how does their marketing work, the list goes on and on. And then, you know, all your marketing material or your processes, everything is is kind of haphazard and ad hoc each time. So we kind of wanted to go through niching, you know, even in those early days. And we kind of tried our hand at a few. You know, we sort of thought maybe nonprofits might be great for us. Again, give back. It's fun. You know, put a smile on people's face. We didn't like that so much. And there wasn't a lot of money to be made either. So that didn't really fit some of our outcomes. And we also tried SaaS. We had a kind of a, a couple of insurance customers in those early days. And, you know, we kind of dabbled with the idea and we eventually came back to it and eventually kind of went all in on it. And yeah, it's been great. It's been probably one of the best decisions we made, not without its road bumps. You know, we had to really bring ourselves up on how insurance works, but, uh, you know, it's really paid off for us. Let's circle back to talk a little bit about why you're an entrepreneur. Can you take me back to, you know, where you grew up and what sort of things led to you seeking an alternative career path? You know, it had little to do with my career. I'll, I'll tell you the story. So, you know, I'm obviously from New Zealand originally. I've kind of worked for technology companies in New Zealand for years. So I've, you know, pretty good background in that space. Decided to move to the UK, to London, uh, like a lot of Kiwis do on their overseas experience. Basically spend a few years there, have a good time. And then I met my now wife while I was traveling in Barcelona, actually. You know, we kind of traveled for a few weeks and we were like, hey, this is great. We'd like more of this. And then we kind of went back to our respective countries. I went back to London. She went back to the US. We were trying to plot, how do we, how do we make this happen? Because visas aren't hard to get, right? If you want a visa for the US, it's a several year process. Same for the UK. Uh, you know, how could we pull this off? And, you know, we started brainstorming, oh, you know, we could volunteer. Hey, we're both native English speakers. We could teach English. And uh, I think through the process, we kind of came across, you know, material like the Tropical MBA and, we kind of started listening to that and we're like, oh, actually, maybe we could do it a different way. Maybe we could create a business and actually have some money while we travel instead of kind of living, you know, day by day and week by week. And so we, you know, we just kind of started hashing out ideas and we tried different things. And what year was this, Lawrence? That was probably about six years ago. So you guys are scheming over the web about just like, let's make money online so that we can live a life where we can be together and enjoy the sort of experience we had in Barcelona. Exactly. We knew if we traveled, we wouldn't be subject to the visa restrictions. If we did three months here, six months here, we both love traveling. So yeah, we were scheming over text message, over email, you know, trying to come up with harebrained schemes that could make money and most of them failed. So that was, that was good. And then this one kind of stuck out and, and kind of worked. Can you tell us about some of the things that you did that didn't really get off the ground? Well, my wife actually worked for a company teaching English, I think, to South Korean students at one point. They would basically hire a company to upskill their employees so they could you know, do better international business. And so we thought, hey, that, that could be an, an idea. So I think we tried to teach English to some of the wealthy Middle Eastern countries. So we were like cold calling <laughs> Dubai and, and Qatar and things, trying to see if they wanted to teach their employees English. That was one of them. I kind of did a like an IT company thing for a while, but 
you know, IT is no fun because there's desktop computers and printers and all sorts of things that you physically may need to touch and unplug. And that was just a terrible idea. And so what was the first thing that you were like, hmm, maybe this is something? It was really by chance. I've used Salesforce over the years. I was familiar with it, kind of used it at a, you know, a few companies and worked with it, but I never really considered it as a, as a possible option. And then, yeah, by chance encounter, you know, a former colleague was basically telling me his clients were ringing him up saying, do you know anyone that does Salesforce consulting? We can't find anyone. They won't return our calls. And I went, oh, that's interesting. They won't return your calls. And so it was at that point that we started looking into it in a big way and seeing if there was, you know, a space we could fit in. And because it's all virtual, it's all software. Again, you can do it anywhere. So it kind of ticked all the boxes for us. Now, there's not a single person listening to this podcast that doesn't have fluency in at least one software application that helps businesses grow. Can you take me from that feeling of confidence with Salesforce to making money from it with clients? Well, we didn't really have any contacts in this space. All the clients you know, we won over the years, we had to go out and find them. So it wasn't even like we could tap a network and be like, hey, can we help you with this? You know, and it was scary at the start. You're kind of coming in as an expert and perhaps it's the first project you've really done on the on the platform. In the early days, there was a lot of winging. There was a lot of Googling, a lot of Upwork, you know, hiring freelancers to help us with different things. And yeah, it was scary. It was, it was exciting, you know, and, and, and then to look back now, it just seems like that was another life. You find a client, say, on LinkedIn or? In the early days, we did cold email marketing. And we had some luck, actually, because, you know, there's, there's products like Biltworth that you can pay them and they'll give you a list of companies that use a particular piece of software. Like Salesforce is pretty easy to spot a lot of the time. And you can spot it for reasons like their emails are generated from something that looks like Salesforce platform, stuff like that. It's kind of if they're using like the web form feature of Salesforce, like to get web leads and things, then you can kind of spot it. Now we know it doesn't work for all Salesforce customers. In fact, probably most of them you can't spot, but a select few you can. And they turned, turned out to probably be the smaller customers that were probably easier to win in the early days. And in fact, we were actually pitching them an unlimited support offering. You know, we were kind of looking at the WP curves and going, oh, maybe we could do this for Salesforce. I don't think anyone's doing this. So WP curve, can you describe what was inspirational about that or what it is for the audience? They had a kind of a WordPress support model where you pay a you know a set price per month and you get as much as you want, as long as it kind of fits a mold of, I don't know, different requests. So we thought, hey, maybe we could do that for Salesforce as well. You know, if you're doing these 20 items, we'll take care of it for you under a fixed fee each month. We don't do that anymore. We kind of realized that was maybe not as profitable as we wanted and that we could make a lot more by doing bespoke things uh, that our customers really wanted. But in the early days, we got a bit of traction. And then we spent a lot of time actually on Upwork. We found quite a few clients on there. Some of those clients are still customers today. There's constantly jobs being posted. You just had to get really good at pitching, you know, so you have a small little window to pitch. We would record like videos of ourselves and, you know, introduce ourselves via video and include that in our pitch. And I think for most people who just do a generic pitch, we stood out above the bunch. So we, we won a lot of work that way. Interesting. So what are some other ways you can be good at pitching? 
And give me an idea of like what one of these early deals might have been that was a good one. Well, in the early days, a good deal would have been maybe five to seven K. Nowadays, a good deal is six figures plus. If you've seen a lot of Upwork pitches, it's so generic. Often they're not even spell checked. Their profiles are boring. They don't really speak to you. And a lot of people don't use video. A lot of people won't record a quick, like a Loom or a cloud app, just a quick screen recording, describing why you're a good fit, how you can help them. The number of people that would just say, hey, thanks for the video. No one's done that. And, and maybe it's different now. Maybe five or six years later, people are doing it to a higher degree. But at the time, no one was using video. So it was easy for us. It's remarkable how everybody's looking for you know, fancy strategies and high-level stuff, but that so many professionals just focus on the basics. Have a channel, get leads, pitch them effectively. Now, are you guys going into companies and saying, hey, Salesforce can like help grow your revenue. Here's the campaigns we want to run for you. Here's how you need to implement it with your, you know, I'm assuming you do implementations with their ERP systems or other sorts of in-house systems. Or do you say, hey, you guys want to do this. We can do it. Here's the price sort of thing. Thankfully, a lot of customers coming to us already know what the platform is. And they're typically looking for very insurance specific features. So, you know, Salesforce is a Swiss Army knife and you kind of need to add some other applications with it to make it useful. So they, they buy the Swasami knife, and then they're like, cool, it can't do anything. Can you now make it talk to these other things? Can you make it useful to us? And that's where we come in. We, you know, we speak insurance, which is basically another language. We connect all the dots for them. This is actually, again, like a, a huge perk of niching is because we're so focused, we're able to partner with some other software companies that also integrate with Salesforce or are built on top of Salesforce, but are very insurance specific. So to them, we're a fantastic partner because we speak their language as well. And we just want to deal with insurance companies. And so they know when they send us a lead, oh yeah, these guys will take care of them. They already know what they're doing. They know our software. They're not just going to do one project and then shoot away. They'll continue to do projects with us over and over. Now, so few of us have felt the feeling of what a six-figure engagement looks like. Can you bring us into that world a little bit? Like, How can you even charge somebody that much money for anything? I live in New York helps. I mean, it's not easy the, the first couple of times, right? You're going to get the butterflies. You're going to be nervous. I think it helps if you look at what enterprise cap or even small to medium business are prepared to pay. You know, if they want to recruit a person, they might pay a recruiter tens of thousands of dollars for the privilege to recruit someone for them. They're going to pay company benefits. They're going to have to pay them to go on holiday and not be at work. They're going to pay when they're sick. The costs just add up. And then you have to think about how many tea breaks they're going to have where they're not doing anything and <laughs> you're still paying them. And so are you getting to the idea that you're anchoring your pricing to what they would have to pay someone to do it in-house? They would still typically pay a little bit more. You know, they're, like their outsourcing is usually more, but they're typically going to get a much quicker result from when they push play to when they go live. It's going to be a much shorter period of time for them. When you hire someone, if you get it wrong, you know, you have to go back and re-recruit and find the right person. So these all add time delays. So, you know, really people that come to us, they don't want to recruit people. They don't want to 
deal with it in-house. They want someone to take care of it, someone who's done it before. Because this stuff is, yeah, it's complex. So you really want a partner that's done a lot of them to make sure you get a good result. Now, on the show before, Lawrence, we've talked about this business model as SWAS, which is software with a service. I'm curious, do you guys identify with that term or think anything about it? Yeah, absolutely we do. I mean, you know, we're piggybacking on another product, on a software product. So without that product, we wouldn't really exist. And, and I think you can recreate what we've done with so many different products. Even the Salesforce ecosystem, there are thousands of products that are all complex, that are all absolutely critical to various organizations that you could layer a service on top of. It doesn't have to be just marketing. For example, there's a product called DocuSign, which does electronic signature. That's something that's complex and it's absolutely critical to most sales organizations. You don't need to know anything about marketing or sales. You just need to know that they want to generate a document that can be signed off really quickly with a few clicks. Most of the time, it's companies like us that end up having to deal with it, even though it's not our core focus, but we, we kind of have to bring it under the umbrella because no one else does. Interesting. So you're suggesting in this specific instance that someone who could do DocuSign implementations to a wide variety of different platforms, that could be a business just in and of itself. Oh, yeah. Like an iPhone or an Android, there's an app store for Salesforce called the App Exchange, and all of these apps are on there, thousands of them, with tens of thousands of installs all over the world. So yeah, they're all potential opportunities. And we don't have the bandwidth to, to cover all of those. And in fact, we do partner with some other organizations for specialist software that we don't want to deal with, you know, because it is, it's just not our key focus. What I find exciting about SWAS business models, especially I think the situation you found yourself in where you're just kind of like, hey, I'm at zero, I want to start traveling and I need cash flow. Well, the cool thing about SWAS for me is like, like you just mentioned, you can see the cash flow. Like, yeah, of course you're marrying yourself to a platform. However, you can see exactly how long the platform has been alive. You can make a estimation of how much money there is in terms of their total customers. A lot of companies have this information public. Salesforce is a public company. And then you can dig into all the people who are implementing it and make pretty rough napkin math in terms of how much they're spending to do it. Absolutely. There's very little startup cost to do it. You know, and, and a kind of a little known secret, you know, and DocuSign's probably not a great example because they're just a giant organization. But if you speak with a lot of these companies and you tell them what you're looking to do, they're often really interested and they go, Oh, great, we struggle to find partners that really know our product. You know, if we get a lead, would you be interested in taking it? And you're like, heck yeah, I'll take your leads. And then, you know, and again, if you can continuously deliver and you can kind of cement those relationships inside their business, those leads just keep coming. In a way, you, you create your own sales channel. It's fantastic. Well, and even in smaller organizations, you know, I look at uh, someone like Vanilla Forum, someone that I speak with the product manager, and they have 15 developers in-house. They currently, as far as I know, don't have a developer advocate business attached. And they would love that if someone who was a talented PHP developer said, hey, our firm does custom vanilla. You're just swassing right on top of an existing cash flow. And you get to have a relationship with the, the product folks. So a lot of opportunities can come direct. They could be your marketing channel. 
In other words, so one of the things I just want to point out to the listenership is just you could sit down with a friend, with another business mind, and you could have a challenge and just try to come up with 100 SWAS ideas in an afternoon. And I don't think you'd be that hard-pressed to do it. And I think that that's what's exciting about this. There's a lot of jack-of-all-trades. Yeah, there's huge opportunity if you get really focused on a platform like that. Today's show is sponsored and hydrated by Drink Element. That's spelled L-M-N-T, which I've been drinking daily now for weeks. These are basically electrolyte packages that hydrate you. I'm looking at the back of the package now. 10 calories for the flavored version. There's no junk in there. There's no sugar. It's essentially the right mix of salts, potassium, and magnesium to properly hydrate you. Now, I learned personally how important this is when I started cycling seriously when I was living in Barcelona. I would go on these big, long cycling adventures and realize that water simply does not cut it. So I started getting interested in the power of electrolytes. I'll now use electrolytes in my water nearly every day. And that's why it was so cool when Element came knocking to sponsor the pod. Element is also paleo and keto friendly. So not only are they good for cycling, but they're great for being productive in front of your computer, taking on day hikes, or even to use while you're fasting. Element was developed by Rob Wolf, a former research biochemist, and his coaches, Tyler and Lewis. They created this product because they were frustrated, as I was, with the lack of healthy electrolyte options on the market. Element is used by many of the world's top performing athletes, including the Navy SEALs, Team USA Weightlifting, and dozens of NFL, NBA, and other professional sports teams. They offer a no-questions-asked refund policy. You don't even got to send it back, so try it out. You'll get free shipping on all U.S. orders. Seriously, something I'm really excited about and use daily. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash tropicalmba on amazon.com. Try it out and see how it goes for you. Hopefully, you will enjoy it as much as me and the boss man have. Again, that URL is drinkelement.com com slash tropical MBA and a big shout out to the team at Drink Element for sponsoring the show. How long did it take you guys to get to the level where you felt comfortable with, I guess, as comfortable with running your own business as you did in your job when you were getting a salary and you were making rent and all of that? Were there years there where you were kind of scared whether or not you were going to be able to do that for yourself? Oh, of course. You know, the first couple of years, I think, of any business, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to work out. It probably took maybe two or three years at least to really start to feel like it was, you know, really starting to pump along and that we really kind of had it together. I don't think you can really create something that's going to grow in, in six months and know that, well, I mean, you can, but for us, it obviously took a lot longer. Why? Because I feel like that's a big emotional milestone when. I look at your face right now. You seem like a comfortable, confident entrepreneur, like a guy who can go out and just make this work. And if I even took away your current business from you, yeah, you'd be bummed about it, but I don't think you'd sweat too much. I think you'd say, yeah, no, I can go do this again. I want to kind of tap into that sense of confidence. And, and what, what is, is it just a feeling that you had? You're just used to it after three years or was there certain assets that came about that changed things for you? My background is technology. So, you know, I've kind of done various technology projects over the years. So 
there's kind of a lot of career capital, you know, when you switch to something like a Salesforce or a SWAS business, you know, you can take a lot of your skills you already have and kind of apply them. And my wife, business partner, we used to say, well, what if Salesforce shuts down? What do we do then? Like, what if they go out of business? And it was like, well, we kind of already know how to do these projects. We kind of know what sort of people we need on our team. We know how to price it. We know what our customers need. We could go find a different product that's similar, learn how that works, and then do the same thing. You know, so it doesn't have to be Salesforce. It could be any of the different software platforms that are competitors. And it wouldn't take us that long to get up to speed and, and be able to create a business around that. So if we got bought out, we got purchased tomorrow. You know, we could easily go and compete on a different platform within a few months just because we've kind of been through that, you know, those two or three years of, of figuring out how the industry works. It sounds like you're gesturing towards know-how. You can sell, you know how to identify a market. It doesn't seem like you're saying, oh, we finally built up enough traffic to our website, or we finally, you know, figured out this thing that we were doing wrong and we changed it and now we're good. Yeah, definitely not traffic to the website. We've, we've got very little. I think, you know, I think we have a couple of maybe 15,000 views on our YouTube channel, which is nothing really. It's absolutely nothing in the, in the big scheme of things. But it's, yeah, a lot of it for us has been relationships and kind of knowing where to put those relationships, where to put the work. Who should we be talking to? Who do we need to buy lunch for? And we, we don't buy many lunches. We're remote. But where do we need to put our energy and time so that we're in front of the right people and they know we exist? And I think we would like to build an audience. You know, it's definitely something that we, you know, we would like to do, but we tend to have a large number of big deals that kind of keep us moving. And, and some of those deals last for years at a time. So this hasn't really been a, a drive to bring in lots and lots of new leads. You know, as long as we, we win the leads that we want to win, then we continue to grow at a rate that we can, you know, sustain because we, you know, we're self-funded, we're bootstrapped. Like many companies we started with just the money in our back pockets and we've had to grow from there. Looking back at your career, there's been, there's a lot of debate in our community about should you have a good job? How long do you need to have it? And should you just go straight out of college or university and be an entrepreneur? How much has your career experience benefited or detracted from now your experience as an entrepreneur? I think I got really lucky. I joined an IT company years and years ago that was on a big growth trajectory. And the three founders of that company had basically spent very little time in industry and, and had started their company very, very soon. So I kind of got to watch and absorb as they grew their business and the challenges they went through. And you know, over those kind of eight or nine years, they went from like 15 staff to nearly 100. So uh, there were a lot of milestones in there that, you know, I was, I was privy to. I got to see and, and experience firsthand. So I think, I think it was actually really helpful. It's kind of hard to imagine if I didn't have that experience, how would we be projecting? I, I really don't know. But for me, at least, it was super helpful. Now, I've been making a bit of a sales pitch for SWAS here. Could you supply me with some of the negative things about running a business in this style? There's definitely a few negative things. At the end of the day, you, you have customers and then you have your partners and your partners are also a customer. So, you know, if you think about a company selling Salesforce, you know, or Salesforce-based solution, they want to sell licenses. So when you get involved, you want to do a good job and, and deliver the solution for them. But if you're too expensive, that may then 
mean that the SWAS provider, whoever that is, may not get the deal. The customer may decide, actually, it's too expensive. We'll, we'll do it next year. So you're kind of constantly in a juggling match where you have to keep your supplier happy and then also keep the customer happy. So that would, that would definitely be one thing that surprised us. Particularly, we used to do a lot of work with Salesforce directly. You know, their sales reps would expect it to maybe cost, I don't know, let's say it costs five grand. You know, when we talk with the customer, we're like, this is a $30,000, $40,000 deal. So there was often a really big misalignment between what the partner thought it should cost and what we actually thought it would cost. But I mean, other than that, I think it's a, it's a pretty good model. It's, it is a service business. So, you know, you're always fighting fires, but uh, I don't know if there's any business where you don't fight fires. If there is, I'd love to work at one. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I'm certainly in this category. Sometimes I think about lifestyle businesses and I, I attach that idea to like doing things I really enjoy. And so there's a lot of folks in our community who, you know, I'm passionate about this. So I'll become a coach or a teacher in that realm, or I'll write books about it, or, you know, I'll get involved in, like you said earlier, nonprofits, cool stuff. And and then here you are saying, well, you know, I met my wife in Barcelona, we cooked up a business, and I'm in insurance and service. And I'm curious as how do you see that dichotomy between like the kind of passion angle and then doing things that I assume you wouldn't think, like you mentioned earlier, you speak insurance. I'm assuming this isn't a language you would have learned on a sabbatical if you had some spare time. We definitely tried the passion route. It just didn't really work for us. So we kind of tried the next thing that we thought would be exciting and then the next thing. And you know, it turns out insurance wasn't top of our list. It was probably near the bottom. You know, we, it, it is what it is. But we kept coming back to insurance. It kept coming back as ticking the most boxes for us. So then it was, okay, well, if we're going to do insurance, we got to go learn insurance. You know, there's books you can read. There's podcasts. There's conferences you can go to. You can really kind of learn the industry pretty quickly. It's got to be so much cheaper. If you look through your whole organization, you pointed to operational costs, especially in terms of the sales and marketing costs. I would think it would be so much easier to identify a good client and to get them paying you money. And even think about case studies. You know, we only have to do insurance case studies. We don't have to deal with, you know, if someone's coming to us in real estate, we don't have to scratch to find another real estate deal that we did three years ago. And it's nice when you talk to a client, you kind of already know what they want. You just have to get them to say it and confirm it, you know, because they, they all want very similar things. And it makes your life a lot easier. It, you're not doing as much hard sell. You're just kind of stating what you've done and it resonates with them. So once we'd made that decision, it was pretty smooth sailing from there. I think had we done it sooner, we'd be in a, a much better position now. But there was a lot of reluctance at the beginning to pick that route. You know, you're traveling around the world. At, you know, I don't think anyone dreams of doing insurance. But, you know, it, it's a shame because I think more people should go into that industry. You know, there's a lot of people that are reaching retirement age who run these huge organizations and there aren't enough, you know, younger people coming through the ranks to replace them. So, you know, we've certainly discovered insurance is just a massive opportunity. And, you know, they're going through a huge digitalization at the moment. And that's not going to be done next year. That's going to take decades, you know, and it's going to be ongoing. You are business partners with your wife, and there's a lot of people in the community that partner with their partner. 
Can you give us some insight into business partnerships and, and how specifically it works in the context of a relationship? Uh, you've got to be good communicators, right? <laughs> you kind of have to separate, you know, how you talk to your partner as your partner and how you talk to your colleagues, you know, because there can be a difference when you're talking business to another person. It can be very matter of fact. It can be very, you kind of have to adjust how you speak. Yeah. That's always an ongoing learning battle for us, but it's worked out extremely well for us. You know, it's like having someone you can trust with everything you've got, you know, running the books and watching your back at all times. So not having my wife as, as a business partner, I don't, I don't know how I'd do it. I, I think I would need to, to seek out a, you know, a business partner because there's, there's just too much. My brain is busy rattling around with just the part of the business I deal with, let alone having to also concern myself with all the parts she runs. You mentioned you're about five years in, and a lot of times in, in the DC or Dynamite Circle, we see that you know, kind of like five to eight years of running the same business is sort of when people are going to make like a wealth move with their business. It, it tends to happen in that time frame. Like you've gotten yourself to the point where you make a good living, you can live in New York. And then it's like, there's a next level that some businesses achieve where you're basically making a lot of money every year and like someone's running the company a lot of it. And then the other option is to sell it. I'm curious, do you guys think about those things? Do you feel like this could be a wealth vehicle, not just a really good living from anywhere in the world? We go back and forth. This year in particular has been really busy. As much as we lost business due to COVID, we've also grown uh, and replaced it and then some. So if you'd asked me a few months ago, I probably would have said, sell it, sell it, <laughs> you know, let's get out. <laughs> But, you know, since then, we've been kind of working on our team and our structure. And right now, our focus is just getting the right people into the right seats so that we can continue to kind of ride the wave that we're on. But I imagine if you got stuck at that same point for eight years, something would have to change. Either you'd, you'd give up or you'd sell it. So I think, thankfully, we're kind of moving, moving through that. We don't know what the future could hold. You know, we've certainly looked at various options, like Salesforce actually has an investment arm where you know, for select businesses, they'll actually take an investment in your company and then, you know, to kind of foster growth in their community and whatnot. So that could be a really interesting option to consider if we can kind of meet their, you know, revenue requirements. Because once you've got a backer like that, they're going to continuously push you and kind of open you up to opportunities you didn't know existed. You know, it's like you're getting the, the fast pass at a theme park. So we'll, we'll see what happens. What sorts of things would you want to tell you yourself when you started kicking around? There's a lot of folks listening to this podcast. They might have heard about these ecosystems and SWAS and be reminded of the idea. What sorts of things would you encourage them to think about as they, they got a little spare time? It's COVID times. So they want to spend some time hustling and building an income for themselves that can be location independent. I would say just start. You know, a lot of people spend so long figuring out the domain name or the website or, I don't know, the product. I don't know. There's just so many reasons to procrastinate when you should be out trying to pitch someone and trying to get someone to say yes. And, and until you do that, you don't really know what your business is. As I said, like our business has changed. It's unrecognizable from when we first launched it. But if we'd spent months and months fine tuning, and we did, like, don't get me wrong, we did as well. But it wasn't until we started cold emailing and, and we got the first yes that our business really started. Like, you know, we could have won a client without a website, without, you know, a lot of things. 
they didn't actually matter at the end of the day for our first couple of customers. Just please start. Just stop putting it off and just go out and sell it. Even if it's not ready, it's not perfect because you'll very quickly find out if you've got it right or wrong. Don't waste six months or a year kind of toying around with the idea. That's the pattern I see over and over again. And it, and you kind of just want to shake them. Come on, do it. Well, let's talk about that then real quick. And you don't have to be diplomatic. Let's just find one way that anybody could start. Like what's something, rather than be that person that everybody wants to shake, what is the action that represents starting for you? Research, find a product, take the product. That's the one. That's what I'm going to do. And reach out to the vendor. Start making some inquiries at the vendor. Hey, I want to focus on, I don't know, DocuSign implementations. That's all I want to do. It's all I'm interested in doing. How do I get certified? How do I get leads? Do you have a partner channel? What can I do for you? Who do I need to talk to? Just start putting the foot out there. And that would be an easy option. All right. So you you get we don't need certification. We don't provide you leads. You're too much of a small fry. We don't want to deal with you. Now what? I think in that case, you might want to find a different app. <laughs> you know, if uh, yeah. if you want to do a SWAS, you really need partnerships, I think is important. So that would be a consideration. Have I got the right app? Should I try a different one and, and repeat the process? Otherwise, yeah. Who can I tap in my network? You know, what's my LinkedIn connections look like? Hopefully you've been Over the years, connecting with everyone you know, is there anyone there that might be somehow connected to someone that I might want to talk to? If not, do I have any friends? You know, I would just start scraping the barrel to see if there's anything you can churn up. Worst case, you know, jump on Upwork, see if you can scratch up some work there. Cold call. I mean, there's there's just so many ways you could go and, and find a client. You don't need huge amounts of money to start. You don't need you know, a perfect business plan. You don't need the perfect sales script. You don't need anything. That's the brilliant part. You know, it's like with all these other business models, it's like build traffic, build an audience, build trust, build likability, build a product, build a platform, blah, 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 blah. With this, all you need is to build an offer. And you can say, hey, LinkedIn peeps, you know, I'm seeking to help people that are using DocuSign or whatever app you like or feel there's an opportunity with. And here's what I'm offering. Definitely. Business to business is a funny game. Like most of it's just done on handshakes. You know, a lot of it is, oh yeah, oh, you seem like a good person. Okay, cool. All right, come help us out. Sign this doc. Cool. You're it. You're the person now. (laughs) We're going to call you whenever there's a problem. (laughs) And they don't really, I don't know, like no one ever really looks at your website. No one ever really looks to see if you have the right business cards and if your logo looks cool. Nobody cares. They're just looking for someone to make it their problem so they don't have to deal with it anymore. You mentioned, you know, you're in an interesting position because you're a listener of podcasts and you are the audience, sort of like the silent majority of the audiences of these podcasts who you don't benefit from coming on this show. Clients aren't probably going to come knocking, or maybe they will, whatever. But like the point is, is you're here because you're doing me a favor. And the question I have for you is like when you listen to podcasts, what are sort of the things that like the internet, podcasts, Twitter, all this stuff like misses about the reality of what this lifestyle of entrepreneurship is really about? First, let me say podcasts like yours are the reason we are where we are today. So we're, you know, indebted 
to the work you guys put in. It, it, it's been really powerful for us. And again, it showed us a possible way forward. I think a lot of the podcasts and, and material is, at least for us, it's very business to consumer focused, which we're very business to business focused. So, you know, even like a lot of the marketing stuff you talk about, the the examples they always give you is, oh, I design kayaks or I do this or I do that for this person to make them happy or whatever it is. So I feel like the business to business aspect is often kind of underserved a little bit. How do you kind of grow a service business that talks to other businesses? That part I feel like we we don't get a lot of. I feel like most people would talk about business to consumer just because it's a maybe a more interesting conversation. The examples are more uplifting. They're you know they're easier to relate to. Well, and certainly I think you might get the wrong impression about how well everybody's doing mm. because we come here to talk about hey here's like a model that you can learn from, but the reality is is like hustle, grind, self doubt, COVID blues, you know, having to get recharged and motivated and. That's most of it, actually. Yeah, self-doubt and fighting fires and, <laughs> and, and making sure invoices get paid. You know, that's, that's your life going forward. Is this the life you really want? Well, here it is, entrepreneurship. <laughs> I wouldn't change it. I don't know what you would say, Dan, but I, I wouldn't change it. Uh, you know, the, the decisions we've made, I would do it all again if I had the choice. Hell yeah. Lawrence, I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, sharing your thoughts with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dan. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Hey, big shout out to Lawrence for dropping by the show. I love the just straightforward focus. Like, yes, when you decide to start a business, Ian, your day-to-day grind is going to be problem-solving fires. Like, it's like the old duck going across the pond with the legs underneath the water going crazy. And at top, it just looks like, oh, here's a business that makes... (laughs) Almost a million bucks a year, you know? But what I love about the SWAS concept and how Lawrence broke it down for us is that fundamentally the principles here and the frameworks, they are simple. That there are existing cash flows. Companies have already raised their hand and say, we believe in this software and we're not just saying it. We are investing in it. And frankly, we need people to help us facilitate that investment. And those opportunities, frankly, exist everywhere. And One of the things we see in the job space, we talked about Dynamite Jobs at the top of the episode, it's very related to the gig space and the project and the services space. And one of the things we've noticed is there is a complete lack of people like Lawrence in the world. People that all day long in the DC, we see people post in the status updates, does anybody know someone that does blank, 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 blankety blank, five-figure project? All day long. And these are people that are truly invested. Now you go on podcasts and reality is underrepresented. You hear people come on the show and they talk about fancy products and their new course and all these businesses that are very sales and marketing heavy. You know, you ask Lawrence, hey man, like what kind of sales and marketing are you doing? It's like, ah, uh, you know, haven't really gotten around to the website in a little while. And the reality is that is the majority of people that I have seen living this lifestyle over my 10 years of doing it. They don't have an active marketing presence on the web because it's just so easy to reach out there into these very needy cash flow markets that have expressed interest and to build a business there. One of the things I feel really passionate about is bringing that story to this show because it's a very, very real opportunity. 
And now Lawrence has an incredible platform to make all kinds of business decisions from where he stands. And so I find it inspiring and uh, thankful for Lawrence for being willing to share about his business with all of us here today. Being in business for a a while now, it's so easy to see for me, but I think it's so difficult for people to see from the outside, like you said, that if people are already spending money, like money is already shooting out of the window, they're going to be willing to allocate some of that money towards you if you're providing a solution that's actually helpful for them. So these businesses, it's not like your personal finances. Like You actually have to spend money to make money. It's just part of the equation. And so the question is, you know, what can you siphon off that money that they already know that they need to spend or that they already are spending and help them get a better return on it or a better result on it or ultimately help them get where they're going? Looking at specifically where that cash flow originates and how it operates, it's really at the core of entrepreneurship is understanding those flows. And that's what I love about this mindset and this framework of SWAS, which is it really focuses your energy, even if it's just a mental exercise, to ask yourself you know, how these value flows are happening and what structures you can build to, like you said, be a big part of it and benefit as well. So my main takeaway, Dan, is find somebody that's spending money already and ask them if you can have a piece of it. (laughs) Of course, you got to do some work. We talk about with B2C stuff, you know, business to consumer, how difficult it is for a consumer to get to the point where they're ready to pull out that credit card. And also the, the reason behind why. Because the reason why a business owner pulls out their credit card, like you said, you got to do a little digging, but it's kind of always the same story, which is we're trying to make money or we're trying to do this or that. It's not usually a secret. Getting into the mind of a consumer <laughs> and their pleasures and their desires and all those things, like then you start thinking about psychology. It's not even about business and numbers and spreadsheets anymore. Now you got to factor in like these ideas, these esoteric ideas about why people spend money. I'm not smart enough to do that. <laughs> Which is totally cool, but the reality is, you know, I was talking to producer Jane about this episode and she's like, it's just so much easier to get businesses to spend money. And it's so true. They're already in the habit of spending money on a daily basis. The proof is in the pudding in just this limited sense is that this is how the vast majority of entrepreneurs in our community actually make money is by doing B2B services, whether that's in a productized form, a SWAS form, or in more of agency project base. And that's how it gets done. It's right there in front of all of us to take up as an opportunity. Cool. So big thanks to Lawrence. Big thanks to you, boss man. Good day to you. And big thanks to Element for sponsoring the show. You got your Element and your uh, drink beat on over there? I'm not kidding you, Dan. I drink this stuff every single day. (laughs) It's so good. You feel like it's like a simple, no calorie way to hydrate yourself, to do something good for yourself and to uh, stay motivated throughout the day. A little bit of coffee, a little bit of element-infused water, and you are off to the races on your next business idea. When you say a little bit, uh, I'm on my second and a half (laughs) cup this morning. Does that qualify as a little bit? That's a little bit for you. Boss man, thanks for joining us. (laughs) And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'll be back, as always, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning 
8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.